so something as simple as idea generation, if you're not in a room full of people you trust, none of these methods or techniques are going to help you because no one's going to feel safe enough to offer what they really think. And often that the problem is that these brainstorming meetings are done with 20 people, 15 people. There's no way, even in a healthy organization, the likelihood there's that much trust among that many people that someone's going to feel confident raising their hand to something they know is probably really weird. And that's why often brainstorming and idea generation happens the best in smaller groups. Yep. Four mm -hmm. people, five that's people. Because even, even if they don't know each other, in 10 minutes they can get a sense of each other and develop some trust. And that's often a problem with project management is it's done at this large scale and the stakeholders and committee members and we're going to brainstorm, but there's 50 people in the room. It's like, no, that's a dog and pony show. That's not where the real brainstorming is going to happen. You're listening to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. I'm Wendy Grounds, and with me in the studio is Bill Yates. In today's episode, we get to sit down with a special guest, Scott Birkin. Scott Birkin is an author, and he has had a big influence on me. He wrote a book called making things happen that I got a hold of early in my project management career and just loved it, just ate it up. Since then, he wrote a book that I really enjoyed also called Confessions of a Public Speaker, which I recommend to all our instructors when we bring them on board. It's so good, so funny, great advice. And the book that we're going to focus on today, he just wrote this year in 2020, and it's called How Design Makes the World. I actually had a look at one of his other books. It's called A Year Without Pants. <laughs> <laughs> the topic, it intrigued me, the title, should I say, and then I saw it was written about working remotely. So if anybody has questions about that, I'd recommend <laughs> that book. Okay, good. Scott, welcome to Manage This. Thank you so much for being our guest. It is a pleasure to be here. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of your books and what Bill wants to talk about, I have a question. You transitioned from project manager into becoming an author and a speaker. Why and how? How's it worked out and, and why? Well, the, the how's worked out well. I quit my job as a tech project manager guy in 2003, and it's now 2020, and I've been doing this for 17 years. I've written eight books, and this is the only way I make a living. So I've been very fortunate and lucky. It's worked out great. I mean, I've been successful enough. I finally made it onto your show. So this is like a great day. <laughs> yeah. The why, the primary reason was a selfish one. I had a good career. I was very lucky. I worked at Microsoft. I worked on some very important projects. I had a good career there. But I turned 31, 32, and I started asking myself the question, is this all I'm ever going to do? And I have always been a curious person, an ambitious person about the world and trying to figure out there's so many things I'm interested in. I don't want to spend my whole life working as a project manager if maybe there's something else I should at least try. So my goal was to quit and to force myself to do something else. And I buffered myself for the prospect of failure by saying, well, if I go out in the world and do something else and I fail, I like managing projects. So the worst thing could possibly happen is <laughs> I'll come back and do what I was doing. But not to try something else seemed like a terrible strategic mistake. So I quit, and I'd always been interested in writing. I was not a journalist or anything. I'd written a few articles here and there. It was always the thing in the back of my mind, someday I'll write a book. And I was like, today is that day. I'm becoming middle-aged, so I quit. I tried to become a writer. I worked on a book that was a total failure. I couldn't find a publisher <laughs> for it. But I learned through that book 
the seven months I spent working on that book, I like this. So mm. if I can make this work, I want to do it. And then I wrote a book that Bill knows of that was originally entitled The Art of Project Management. It's now called Making Things Happen. And that book was all about how to be a good project manager. Mm. And that book did well enough to support me to do a second book and then the third book. And then now I'm here. <laughs> so that's the how and the why. Scott, I got to tell you, I was really inspired by your first book. Making Things Happen hit me at a perfect time in my career. It kind of opened my eyes up to some, some challenges that project managers face. As a result, many of the things that you have in your book are concepts that we talk about in our classes here at Velocity. So you've had an impact on me and on much of the content that I've helped write. I've been recommending that book for years. I've also recommended your book for speaking, which is Confessions of a Public Speaker. This is a hilarious book. I can't believe how transparent you are in this book. But the book that we want to focus on today is How Design Makes the World. Some of the concepts really register with me because between a designer and a project manager, there's so many similarities. Project managers, their job is to, to solve problems. Designers are doing the same thing. And many times there's so many common links and traits between the two. So I thought it'd be a great conversation for us to have today. Absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, I've always felt like everything is a project. As a project manager, you meet someone at a party, although no one goes to parties anymore these days, but you meet someone in, you know, on Facebook or somewhere and you say you're a project manager. Most people go, oh, like it's a boring yeah. thing. And then I go, well, wait a second. You know, how'd you build your house? How'd you mm -hmm. rearrange your office? How would you deliver whatever the thing you deliver at work is? How would you do that? And they explain, like, that's project management. If it's a movie you saw that you liked, somebody managed that project. If your city or your state had provided you a sufficient number of masks to keep you safe, someone managed that project. Everything is a project. Yeah. So project management means it's central to everything. And design is the same thing. That if you like the layout of your house or you have public transportation in your city that works well and safe and reliable, Somebody designed those things and they had to come up with a plan and where it overlaps with project management. What's a plan? Well, you have a set of goals, a set of constraints, a set of budget restraints, and you're trying to match the goals you have with the constraints that you have. And that's what project managers do, but designers do it from a different angle. Designers mm -hmm. are focused more on the ideas and project managers are focused more on delivery. Yep. But to make anything happen in the world, you need both. That's and right. the division between them has always bothered me. Although the book is, this new book is focused more on looking through the world from the designer's point of view, I'm still a project manager. So a lot of that <laughs> sensibility is infused in the book that mm. you can have a great idea, but if you don't have an organization that is managed well enough to deliver on that idea, then the idea doesn't, it's doesn't, not going to happen. It's not going to matter much. Right, yeah. right. I enjoy talking about this with my friends who are innovators. You do need both. And the disciplines are very similar, but there's some unique characteristics or strengths for the really true designer versus a true project manager. If you can find somebody who's got a little bit of both, then you're, you know, you've really got a, a gem there. Now, I want to get into the book. So the book really tackles four big questions. And the first question is, what are you trying to improve for the designer? Which I would argue that's the same question for the project manager too. The first question needs to be, what are you trying to improve I really got pulled right into your book because you talk about some funny examples and you talk about some that are pretty heart-wrenching too. And the funny one, I love the book by Don Norman, The Design of Everyday Things. Don Norman talks about the Norman doors 
and there are videos out there. Listeners can go to YouTube and look for Norman Doors. They're hilarious. So he's like, I must be an idiot because there are doors that I walk up to, and I'm not really sure if I should be pushing or pulling. Do I grab the latch or do I push the latch? That's one of the things that really jumped out to me. We have to really lean into that question, what are you trying to improve? So what were some of your inspirations in that first question? Well, a stereotype about project managers that there's some truth to most stereotypes. It's unfair to always assume someone who's a project manager embodies those stereotypes, but there's some truth to it. And the stereotype about project managers is they don't really care so much about certain kinds of quality. So if you give a project manager a set of requirements, some project managers will go about my job is to deliver on those requirements as they are written. And I'm going to manage the project. What's the schedule? What's the budget? I'm going to get the project finished. But they're not necessarily going to go and interrogate those requirements to go, wait a second, maybe this requirement isn't all that smart. Or maybe requirement number three actually contradicts requirement number nine. They're both in there. They sound good. In the committee Mm -hmm. meeting, individually, they sounded fine. But now that you actually have to build the thing, there's some problem in how the design that's going to come out of those requirements is going to be. And so thinking about what are you trying to improve, it should be usually about what are you trying to improve for somebody else. You are trying to make public transportation more efficient so people can get to work faster. Or you're trying to make it so the layout of a hospital makes it easier for a doctor to get to the emergency room. There's something you're trying to improve by focusing on the actual person than what you're trying to improve for them. That should be a way to frame how you do all of your work. And that's often overlooked in the management of most things because that requires stepping back outside of your group team politics, outside maybe even of your business model a little bit, outside of your daily frustrations and annoyances to go, wait a second, let's step back. What Mm. are we really doing here? Mm. Now, I worked at Microsoft for a long time. I've worked at other tech company. And a common thing that happens in the tech world is the engineering team gets so excited about building something. And the technology is really interesting. It's cool. There's this new thing and they want to build it in this way and they're excited about it. And they start building. And they fall into the trap of they are building something that the team wants to build. It's not necessarily going to improve anything for anybody. It's just something they have decided they want to build because it's interesting. Right. And so asking the question, what are you trying to improve? Well, an engineer who's building something that's purely really about something they think is cool can't really answer that question. Yeah. What they're in reality, what they're trying to improve is, I want to improve my sense of coolness for what I am making, which is <laughs> right. a terrible answer. Yeah. But mm-hmm. this happens. This is a common thing. So the goal mm. of that question was, it's a simple question, but the idea is to refocus a person and a project on. Let's step back. What are we really doing here? Are we mm. making it easier to be productive in email? Are we making it safer for people to work in dangerous locations? Like, let's step back and not forget what the real plot of all this effort is for. Yeah, that's so key. And it's a struggle for project managers, right? I mean, we we get down in the weeds pretty quickly. That's kind of our job. And then we're delegating or working on tasks that are so specific, and it's hard to step back and ask those questions. And honestly, for me, sometimes it was a fear of I'm afraid to ask that question because we've already committed to this delivery date, this budget, this set of features. If I ask this question, I'm a little bit afraid of the answer I may get. But here, I want to pivot for a second because you've actually shared this in several things that you've written and spoken on, which is on ideas generation. You give some practical advice for idea generation. You say, okay, once we've settled on a problem statement, that thing that we need to improve, then 
the project manager or it could be an outside facilitator can guide the team in following four rules. And I just want to mention those rules and get you to speak to them because I think for some project managers, they haven't really done this before and it could really be a game changer for them. So the first one is the, it's called yes and. So what is the yes and? So those rules come from improv. Yeah. I've taken improv class twice in my life. I found it a revelatory experience. I highly recommend it to any living person who has to operate in a world with other people. People have a terrible fear when I tell them that because they think improv means you show up somewhere and someone's just going to be funny now. Go. Right, right. <laughs> yep. That's, it's the opposite of that. You show up and there's very, very simple games that they teach you that are about listening and about paying attention. It's very simple. A lot of them are games that are like party games. In some cases, you may have played them before. They're very, very simple, but they involve other people, and you listen, and you say something, and you respond. So the four rules you're going to go through, yes and comes from there. The fundamental rule of improv is that whatever the other person says or does, you can't question them. Your job is to follow their lead. So if someone says at the beginning of an improv game, I'm a fireman. You're not allowed to say, well, wait, you're, you're a fireman? I thought you were a pl- You can't do that. Mm-hmm. If they say they're a fireman, you have to follow them into their world. Oh, yeah, the next fire is going to be up. You just have to, whatever they say. Mm-hmm. And for people who are critical thinkers, for people who like to question things, for people who have cynical mindsets like project managers, yes and <laughs> is really hard to do, Yeah, even, even in a game. So that first one is just when you are in the process of entertaining new ideas, at least for 10 seconds, you have to shut that part of your brain off and go, all right, fine. This person always has ridiculous ideas. For 10 seconds, whatever <laughs> they say, I'm going to see where it goes. That's Good. what that means. Yeah. Okay, what about the second one? It's called no half-assing. So half-assing is a, <laughs> a very blunt term for when people are only pretending to participate. And improv is based on theater. So you're performing, you're on stage. And part of making a performance work is everyone has to be fully committed. That's the only way that it works. So if someone starts an improv scene by saying, the building's on fire. And I respond by going, oh, maybe we should go check it out. <laughs> that's not how someone would respond to hearing. That, that's half-assing it. Yes, I am responding. Yes, I'm doing yes and. I'm trying to follow them. But I'm really, I'm demonstrating I'm not really present. Mm, you're not really in. Yeah. Right. And it, mm-hmm. it can't work. If I'm committed and I fully go with it, that might help the other person keep going and go somewhere interesting. Yeah. But if I show up and I'm not really, I'm only pretending to care, mm-hmm. that everyone will know that and I've killed the possibility of us finding something interesting. That's so cool. And I think of brainstorming sessions that we've had with team members before, like think about a risk identification, right? I may be thinking in my head, well, here's a crazy idea, but I'm a little bit afraid to say it because it's kind of dumb. But if I go ahead and speak it out, it may be way out there. The likelihood of this thing would happen is so far out there, but it may trigger a really valuable idea from you. So, you know, I need to go ahead and speak it. I need to create that sense of trust and that lack of fear in my team so that they're they're really fully in. They're not half-assing. They're committed to the process. Yeah. I, you just mentioned a word in there that I think is among the most important words in all the project management which is trust. It's a short word. Everyone goes, yeah, I know about that. But everywhere I've been, every time I'm I'm a consultant somewhere, I'm visiting a team or project, that's the one thing that is obviously broken that no one is trying to fix. So something as simple as idea generation, if you're not in a room full of people you trust, 
none of these methods or techniques are going to help you because no one's going to feel safe enough to offer what they really think. Mm-hmm. And often that the problem is that these brainstorming meetings are done with 20 people, 15 people. There's no way, even in a healthy organization, the likelihood there's that much trust among that many people that someone's going to feel confident raising their hand to something they know is probably really weird. Mm-hmm. And that's why often brainstorming and idea generation happens the best in smaller groups. Yep. Four mm-hmm. people, five That's people, because even, even if they don't know each other, in 10 minutes, they can get a sense of each other and develop some trust. Mm-hmm. And that's often a problem with project management is it's done at this large scale and the stakeholders and committee members and we're going to brainstorm, but there's 50 people in the room. It's like, no, that's a dog and pony show. That's not where the real brainstorming is going to happen. That's good advice. Yeah. Break those groups into smaller groups and come back together and share yeah. consolidated list. So to have that trust. And to make sure that the ideas are still flowing, that leads into the third, which is no blocking questions. Describe what's a blocking question. Well, let's say that in your scenario, let's say it's me and I raise my hand and I go, look, I got this crazy idea. What if we cut all the items in in list A? We cut them all. And instead, we invest it all in this new thing in feature B. And before I can even walk through the potential Someone raised, what about the committee? We're going to have to go back to the committee. They're not going to go, they're not going to go for this. Mm-hmm. I haven't even walked through what the <laughs> idea is yet. Um, going back to the committee, as, as frustrating and painful as that might be, there's a fixed cost to it. It could be done if the idea is valuable enough. Mm-hmm. And to cut someone's legs out, cut the legs out of the idea before you even heard it, you're, you're creating yeah, a blocking question. shut it down. Right, yeah, right. but that blocking question as a project manager is important to ask at some point because mm-hmm. you are the front line of sanity and making sure you're not overcommitted, you're not overscheduled, but yeah. you can't – you don't want to cut the legs out of this possible idea before you've, you've, heard, you've heard the full picture of it. And that's yeah. why that's the third rule is you're trying not to, not to block things. And in improv theater, it's very rare you'll hear someone ask a question Yeah, because that – it takes the energy out of a thought. If someone comes in, I keep using this fireman example for some reason. If someone comes in the room and, and, and says, there's a fire, and you go, are you sure there's a fire? Like, how would you know there's a – no, you'd say, where's the fire? Like, yeah, yeah. You want to keep mm-hmm. the momentum going and let the idea die on its own because it wasn't good rather than it being cut down by you assuming it's bad. That's cool. That leads to the fourth. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the fourth one. Make the other guy look good. Yeah, this gets back to like trust. A lot of organizations, there's not a lot of motivation to make the other project manager or the lead engineer look good because you feel like you're competing with them for prestige or for a bonus or something. But the idea from improv theater is that it's a team activity. So when, if ever you've seen any of these improv TV shows or even if you've seen a movie where there's great acting, What's often not known is that what you identify as the great line or the great joke is set up by the other person. Mm-hmm. In, in comedic duos, there's usually a straight person and the person who seems really funny. The reason why the person seems funny is the other person who sets up the context for them to be funny. But they often get far less credit because they don't get the punchline. And sports is the same thing. I'm a sports guy. I love basketball. Basketball, people pay most attention to who gets the most points. but there's a person who sets them up to get points that's, that's right. called an assist. Mm-hmm. So making the other guy look good is about assists, that you're trying to create a situation for someone else to have a great idea. 
you're trying to either create a framework or a scenario or someone has an idea that's kind of half it's like uh maybe mm-hmm. that's commandments bad and you can like that's where yes and comes in you can come in what if we do that and we add this to it that can complete the idea so it's really about thinking like a team that you are just as successful as a project if fred or sally came up with the idea than if you did and right. that means that you're on looking out how can i set up fred or sally to have an idea or to bring their idea to fruition yeah Okay, so we've tackled the first question from the book, which is, what are you trying to improve? The second question is interesting. Who are you trying to improve it for? So the good designer needs to be reminded of this question and really focus in on it. You start with a classic example of the Segway, and the Segway was going to be that invention that completely revolutionized the world. There were some hilarious quotes that you put in there from some, you know, some real leaders, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, etc., to the segue and the impact that it was going to have. It was going to be bigger than the internet, man. It was huge. And that didn't quite play out. So tell us, how does this question relate to the segue example? Who are you trying to improve it for? The segue is a, a great example, particularly for the tech world, but it applies to lots of projects too. I joked before about these teams of engineers who are notorious for just building stuff they think is cool. And they think that the coolness of it is just so obvious that everyone will want to get it and buy it. And the Segway is an example of that. Dean Kamen, who was the primary inventor of the Segway, he was a very successful inventor. He's really a brilliant guy. He's invented lots of things. He invented a chair that was for disabled people that was an unusual chair. It had all these properties of keeping them centered and balanced, this gyroscopic design. It's really an impressive invention. But the goal for the Segway was they had this technology they already built. They're trying to, how can we take this technology and apply it to a mass market problem? So they had a technology already, and they're thinking about the business case. Let's apply this to everyone somehow. So they framed their design process by starting with this technology first. And they skipped over the process of asking the question, what are the real transportation needs that people have in the real world? We're thinking billions of people are going to buy it. Why? Because it's a cool technology. No, it's a terrible, terrible Mm -hmm. answer. In the design world, and the project management world has some similarities, but in the design world, the language for this is called, it's called user research, where you want to go out into the world and go, let's put our technology aside. Let's go out into the world and study how actual people, these possible target groups, what are they actually doing right now? And what are the strengths and weaknesses of what they're actually doing? And that's something Dean Kamen and the Segway team never did. They never stopped to say, wait a second, what is this Segway going to replace for people? They assumed it would be the car. They just assumed it. They really didn't know. It took no effort (laughs) to go talk to people who own cars and figure out what it would take, what a Segway would have to do for them to give up their car. They just assumed it. And that's like level one of just ignorance about design, that you're presuming all these things about what people actually do. But then level two is, who are you designing for? The common answer, especially among tech startup types or even entrepreneurs, is often, my thing is for everybody. I want everybody to use my new super duper mm-hmm, gadget, yeah. web, web, web app, 5G, whatever. Mm-hmm. I want everybody to use it, which sounds great. It's super ambitious. But the problem is that everybody's a little bit different. If I'm designing, let's say let's, I'm a sports guy, right? Basketball. I want to make a new line of sports sneakers for everybody, right? But they go, okay, everybody's who? Well, there's men and women. Uh, designing a sneaker for a man versus a woman is different. Mm-hmm. The shapes of the feet are different. Their style choice is different. Okay, two big segmentations right there. And then there's a level below that. 
So for men, designing a size 4 shoe versus a size 13 shoe, there's probably a whole bunch of different design constraints for how that should feel, but also mm -hmm. how you engineer that. Yeah. And so you start getting the segmentation when you realize designing for everyone actually means a lot of grouped understanding, designing for group A versus group B versus group C, and breaking that down to requirements, et cetera. And that whole process of really thinking about people and studying people is widely overlooked. Yeah. It's presumed that the person writing the requirement knows everything about the customer, and that's usually flawed. The book pokes at some of the problems that people who assume that make. It is something that project managers and designers have to be reminded of all the time, which is, who are you building this for? What are their true needs? Like you said, I've, I've fallen into this trap myself as a project participant and a project manager. I'm convinced in my head that I know exactly what the user is going to flip out about. But that's just not the case. No. We just recently talked to John Carter, and he was one of the co-inventors of the Bose noise-canceling headphones. And they had invented these, I think, for the bass. They yeah, thought they that wanted to boost everybody the was interested yeah. in that. And when they took it out to stakeholders and to just the general public, everybody loved the noise-canceling feature, which wasn't what they had considered at all. So that was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same yeah, thing. Exactly. How do you ensure that you're successful throughout the entire project? The best answer from the design world is you have to have some part of your process where you're constantly, continually in the loop of your process for developing an idea, coming up with a prototype, finding requirements, prototyping, engineering plan. There's a loop that you go through in your thinking where you're refining and you're refining what actually the project is. Somewhere in that loop has to be you going back out to your customer or back out to the people in the world you're designing for and bringing this thing back to them and, and studying again. Because you're making all these assumptions along the way that your sense of what the problem you were trying to solve and who you were trying to solve it for is consistent, but that's probably not the case. So the way that you ensure that in the software world, it's called usability studies. Often usability studies are called usability tests. And that's kind of a misnomer. A test means it's something you do at the end that you built this thing and this new website, and you spent all this money on it, and you're going to test it at the end and it passed the test. Wrong framework. Because now, let's say at the end you discover something wrong, you can't fix it. The right way to think about it, it's a usability study. You're going to take your thing, your new headphone, your new sneaker, your new mm. N95 mask, whatever it is, and periodically through your design process, you're going to, all right, let's take a break. We're going to take this out to five people, give them the actual prototype, and watch them use it. We're going to watch. We're not going to tell them what to do. We're going to watch them try to use it, and we're going to take notes and learn. And most tech companies, the, the good ones, have figured this out. It has to be part of your process that every week or two weeks or every month, you're going back out and you're refreshing yourself on the reality of what people actually are like. And that's how you ensure it along the way. Without that, you end up like the Segway, where you invest millions of dollars on a project plan has all these assumptions you've forgotten about, and it ends up being a failure. Then you've got the mall cop using that segue, and that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a quote that I just want to read off about prototypes. It's from Tom and David Kelly, the founders of IDEO. If a picture is worth a thousand words and a good prototype is worth a thousand pictures, you know, I know all the agile folks that are out there are going to be going, oh yeah, this is, this is speaking, this is right up my alley. Prototypes, you got to have prototypes. You got to put it in the hands of the customer as quickly as possible so you can get their feedback. And I think this ties back to that second question so well, 
which is you have to remember who you're solving this problem for, who you're designing a solution for. And then they have to be a part of your team and a part of your effort until the end of the delivery, right? Too many times, I mean, I cannot tell you, early in my career, too many times I would start a project and I thought I had the requirements nailed. And then we'd tell the customer to go away and we'd work for weeks without showing them anything. And then again, you'd have that moment of, you could just see the disappointment in their eyes when you present the uh, results and they're like, okay, some of this is good, but some of this is totally not what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets more complicated than that. So one of the things early on in the book about these Norman doors and why they're so common is that it's often more complicated than that. I agree with everything you just said. The customer needs to be involved because the the people building it are not the customer. We have an internalized view of, mm-hmm. the, of the world. So you need to have them involved. But there's another layer of complication to this, which is the customer is not necessarily the user. The person paying for the project, it could be an IT manager at a company who wants something that's going to let people manage their email. But the customer then has now a thousand users at their company that are actually going to use the product. But the customer is thinking, I want this built so it's easy for me to maintain as the IT manager for the company. But that may conflict with the actual users of the thing because easy to maintain for the IT manager might restrict a bunch of important features for the users. So as a designer, as a project manager, there's several layers now of how you have to think about what are you improving and who you're improving it for. Because the customer is going to, well, I want something that's easy for me to manage, but the people who are going to use it may hate that. Huh. So a layer as a designer or a project manager, and this can be very complicated politically, is working with your customer to make sure they are managing the trade-offs, the design trade-offs of satisfying their need as a customer with the needs of their users. Because they often are blind to it in the same way that we're talking about. And this becomes this extra layer of consulting kind of work that project managers have to do, but also product designers have to do of educating your client and customer about some of these very easy to make kinds of philosophical mistakes that they may not be aware of, Mm. which is why this stuff is hard. Yeah, that's so true. Scott, you've got great advice in the book about recognizing and overcoming organizational obstacles. And I'm going to, I'm going to leave that as a homework assignment for our listeners. They've got to go check that out. The one thing I want to hear you talk about was a really good reminder to me, and that was overcoming bias. I, just because of human nature, I am biased. I have lived in a certain area of the country. I've traveled a good bit, but again, I've kind of got a base where I'm from. I went to a particular school. You know, I played sports, so I'm influenced by that. I've been probably kicked in the head a few times. Worked in the IT area. I was a project manager in that area. So, you know, we all have life experiences that create a certain bias. And then we're asked to understand our customer and understand requirements that they've probably typed out and handed to us, or we've had a meeting. So I've got my own bias, and I've discovered that my team members have a bias too. So how do we overcome this bias? This is really hard. I mean, it's clear these are difficult, fundamental human issues with everything going on in our country right now and in the world. This is just, this is stuff that we struggle with as a species Mm. about how to find common ground. Even even we don't agree to get to common ground. So I don't have I can't claim to have a universal answer to this. If I did, I'd be very busy right now. <laughs> but the, the simple answer from all my experience as a project manager, it comes back down to that word that you brought up at the beginning, which is trust. That there are a lot of people I don't agree with about a lot of things, 
but we have some shared basis of respect for each other's intelligence, respect for each other's good nature, that even though we disagree, we do share a desire for an outcome. And that was my job often as a project manager, that even if I'm in a contentious meeting or a meeting with a partner group or some vendor that we've had a difficult relationship with, my job as a leader is to get the key people in the room to get back to having a shared goal, a shared goal. And it could be very simple. It could be, <laughs> hey, we all agree. We all hate each other. We're sick of this project. Let's, Let's get, get it done. done. <laughs> Let's make a sacrifice to get this done in two weeks so we don't have to think about it ever again. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm a New Yorker, right? So that's a skeptical and sort of a negative sounding shared goal. Mm-hmm. But that can be refreshing that everyone knows, hey, yeah. I, I don't like you that much. That's okay. For two weeks, we're going to do a really good job and then Let's we're done. It. Right. And there are obviously much more positive shared goals you can come to. But the person who's leading the project has to be the, the starting point. For getting people on the same page about something, and that's the basis for how you overcome these things. Mm. And at the beginning, maybe really small, but that's how you grow. You plant a seed. Mm. You find out who on the other side or who in the contentious room is most aligned with you, and then maybe you have a side conversation with them. Hey, look, this has been a difficult project. You and I, we seem to have a, a bit of trust here. How do we grow it and then bring more people on the team into our shared trust on this so we can get this done? And that's tough. It's hard. It's not fun but I don't know if any other way. I agree. It's such a process. I think even like in Ed Catmull's book, you know, from Pixar and Disney, Creativity, he, you know, he shared how even with his teams of incredibly creative people in such diversity, there were still blind spots. And he admitted, you know, he said, for me, even as a leader of this team, I know I have blind spots. And the problem with blind spots is they're blind spots. You can't see them. So you need to have people that you can trust a mentor or a coach and, and raise awareness of that. So it's a good reminder, I think, again, to project leaders to, to think about your team, think about how diverse you are in terms of experience and background, and then make sure that you're, you're really reaching out to a diverse group of users that are going to be ultimately using those deliverables that you create and make sure that you've got that diversity represented in your solution. Something that stands out in your book is you, you talk about the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Now, I spent 15 years in healthcare in South Africa many, many years ago. Let's just leave it <laughs> just at that. A yeah. <laughs> but that kind of stood out to me. You, you're requiring the project manager to pause, just look at the big picture and think about who might be hurt by your work now or in the future. Could you just talk to that? Yeah. A lot of my background, again, is from the tech world. The, the tech sector has had a wake-up call in probably the last five or 10 years about the downsides of social media and the downsides for privacy and for how advertising works. And there's been a wake-up call for all the designers and and project managers who work in the tech sector to go, oh, wow, there are all these unintended consequences we had in the things that we made. And we need to grow up and become more mature in how we think about our role in society. And so that reflection back to the Hippocratic Oath, uh, Mike Montiero is a designer who wrote a book called Ruined by Design. Very recently, and that book was about designers need to take responsibility for what you make, even though you're not the project manager or the executive you're involved. Mm-hmm. So the Hippocratic Oath is the oldest standard we have in the Western world for saying, I as a professional, I have an obligation not to hurt anybody, <laughs> which is astounding if you think about it in our corporate business, capitalistic centric worldview, because to compete means you're going to hurt somebody. 
and I'm not against capitalism or anything. I'm just saying that having a stake in the ground from some professional group, doctors, is a very useful challenge to how designers and, and technologists and project managers think about their work. Hmm. We don't have anything quite like that in the engine. Well, actually, some engineers do. Software engineers don't. <laughs> some engineering professions do. But the design world and the tech world doesn't. And that's what I was hearkening back to. We do believe that we're making the world better, but we don't really poke that many holes into our projects to say, ask the question, which is my, the fourth question, who might be hurt by what you are making now or in the future? Mm -hmm. who, might, who might be hurt? Because that forces you to question the unintended, possible unintended consequences. No one makes a piece of software thinking people are going to die or have their privacy hurt yeah, by this. Yeah. We have to be, you should be accountable for as a project manager. Mm -hmm. Scott, I think there, there are practical aspects to that too as a project manager. There are times when I am so focused on my deliverable and how that thing is going to work. I don't think about the department or the customer who's going to have to maintain it. You know, yeah. you, you made the analogy before about maybe there's a CIO going, whoa, 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 whoa. I never knew about this. I got I to gotta bring up a whole team now just to support this new technology. There are times when we're making decisions just because we want to hit a deadline or, or hit a, a milestone. And if we stopped and thought about, okay, if we deliver a week later, that gives us time to clean up this, this, and this. That makes it that much easier for the user. That means they're less likely to throw this piece away. That means that the team, the support team is going to be able to, to maintain it easier, have less overtime, less stress on them. So there, there's some like some internal costs too. It's not just you know, that shell casing that we're putting our product in that's going to go in a, uh, in a dump someplace. There, sometimes there's the, the human cost of extra work or, or complexity that we're adding that we need to slow down and think about. Yeah, I think that ma maintenance is just another one of these sort of, it's not a dirty word, yeah. but it's a diminished, oh, what, what do you work on? Oh, I work on maintenance. Oh, you work on wah, maintenance. Wah. Yeah. But this is where maturity comes back into play. If you're a project manager or an executive or Someone in power, and you're making stuff, the mature, wise, if you're great at what you do, you should be thinking about making stuff that's great for the long term, mm -hmm. stuff that will last. And that means that maintenance is the most important thing about what you have built. If you think it's going to last five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, part of your job then to be good at what you do means you've designed for that. You've designed and accounted for that. And that's not only not in the mindset of a lot of project management. Like you said, you're hired as a contractor, you build a thing, and then you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> Why should right. I care? I'm not paid for that. But that's a shallow – this gets back to the Hippocratic Oath. What, what kind of societal contribution are we making if we're building stuff and disappearing without even offering a plan for – hey, part of how we work is we can't build it for you unless you pay us. But here's a little 10-page booklet about how you should plan to maintain this. That should be standard operating procedure for people who build stuff. And it's not. And is that design? Is that project management? I think it's both. But I don't care what label is on it. But I think our maturation as, as a professional community and as a society, I mean, America's bridges are falling apart, right? Like we're, we don't, we're not great societal-wise as thinking about, thinking about infrastructure. How do we maintain that? And that's about thinking about your next generation. Are we designing for us? Are we designing for our kids, for our grandchildren? Hmm. All these things are like heavy philosophical <laughs> subjects often get excluded from talking about 
yeah. project management, but I think it's all tied together. That's true. Scott, I'm sitting here laughing, thinking about the conversation that we had with Heather about orbital space debris. You know, we all want our cell phones to work great no matter where we are. So, we're, man, we're shooting up rockets all day long. We need more satellites. And then, okay, what happens when the satellite dies? So yeah. that's yeah, another it's, massive it's, project. It's, it's, yeah. It's a, it's a kind of pollution. We did the yeah. same thing with our rivers. We dumped our sewage. Right. right? Hey, it's the sewage. It's the river. Hey. And then a generation later, we can't mm-hmm. drink the water. Yep. You know, yeah. and that's just, that's selfish thinking. We're not thinking about our, our next generation. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, thank you so much for walking through those four questions. That's a peek inside the book, How Design Makes the World. Guys, it's a brilliant book. I mean, I'm not going to say that just for every book that, that we go through, but this one's brilliant and it. It speaks right to project management. There's a, one thing that I saw in there. So in the back of the book, there's this one-page summary, How to Be a Better Designer. And a lot of it is just awareness and self-awareness and viewing the world as we perceive it every day. There are also resources. You've got about seven pages in the back of the book where you list out movies, books, and other articles or resources that you come across. I encourage people to go get it and be inspired by it and change the way they view design. So thank you so much for that. Hey, you're welcome. It's a nice compliment. I, I take that to heart. I appreciate that. Scott. Since we've got you, I've got to ask you this. What advice do you have to project managers that you could share with them who are early in their career? I think the best advice for project managers is to become really curious about how projects outside of your domain are managed. Because as as I said before, everything is a project. Yeah. A a chef at a restaurant is a Mm -hmm. project manager. How do they... What are the requirements? How do they deliver? How do they manage schedules? That's a whole world that's a different vocabulary and a different set of metaphors than the one that you know. Same thing for making a rocket that goes into space or a website. Everything is a project and become curious about it. And once mm. you do, you'll discover all these different ways of thinking about your work that will challenge you and will inform you with metaphors and tactics that your domain doesn't know about yet. So be curious study other kinds of projects. Scott, can you tell us what you're working on next? My plan is super secret, but I'm going <laughs> to share it with you. <laughs> now, look, authors get asked this all the time. We kind of hate that question. We don't hate it too much because you are interested. That's great. But for me, a book is a commitment. The book came out just a couple of months ago. My job until the world is better designed is to get more people to read the book. And even shy of that, if I can do it with means that don't involve the book, I want a better designed world. I think most people do. I'm trying to actively spend my time doing it. And the book is a vehicle and an artifact to help make that happen. So that's my goal for the rest of the year, is to help make the world a better designed place. One way that we can help with that is how can our listeners reach out to you? If they want to talk some more with you, what's the best way to reach you? I am easy to find. My website's my name. ScottBirkin.com. I have a mailing list you can get on. I have thousands of blog posts on there about project management, design. I've been doing this a long time. That's one, ScottBirkin.com. If you're on Twitter, I'm active on Twitter, and my handle there is just at Birkin, B-E-R-K-U-N. Thank you so much, Scott. We really appreciate you being here. We've loved it, and we've loved talking with you. You're welcome. It was a fun conversation. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. 
Thanks, Scott. It's awesome to talk to the author who has written some fantastic books in the area of project management. And it's stretching our brain, man. This stuff on design is fantastic. So thank you for your time. Uh, Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Manage This. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or a comment on our website. You have also just earned some professional development units from listening to this podcast. To claim your free PDUs, go to VelociTeach.com and choose Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click the button that says Claim PDUs and click through the steps. That's all for this episode. Until next time, keep calm and manage this.